Listener Production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode, I'm in Sydney catching up with Mark Webber. Somewhere in a schedule of more than 75 international flights a year, the world endurance champion and two-time winner of the Formula One Monaco Grand Prix has snuck back home to Australia for a function with Porsche on its e-performance program. I began by talking about a photo that he shared recently on social media and how his rise to the dizzy heights of motorsport really began by ripping around town like most of us, on a BMX bike. Yeah, I think I know the photo you're talking about. Um, it was a Christmas present that day. I think I was, yeah, I think I was 11, something like that. Mongoose, um, Kurahara, what was it? Yeah, you know? mate, it, was, uh, no, it wasn't It wasn't that good, mate. I think it was, um, yeah, I think it was nearly a Melvin, it was a Melvin style. So it was pretty, she was, she was pretty, she was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty basic off the, off the rack, off the rack there, mate. But, um, yeah, I mean that was just such independence. I mean, sensational. I still know the roots race to go, and obviously flicking it off the gutters and and having fun and um, meeting my buddies and sort of little BMX bandits in a way. So it was uh, it was sensational, um, and you know I loved doing that in Queenbin for sure. Your dad's always had a, a great passion for motor racing. I can fondly recall him talking about people like Spencer Martin and, and others. What was your first connection with the sport, mate? What was the moment that Mark Webber kind of went? How long has this been going on? This is bloody good. Yeah, I think it was uh, Trali, really, which was a which was an oval dirt track out the back of Queenbian there near Jerobomba, um, in between Queenbian and Canberra, right on the border. And um, I think I used to go out there and watch the midgets and sprint cars and also the super sedans or you know everything then and on dad's shoulders and and that was pretty cool. So that was the first sort of snapshot of of racing, I suppose, to to see how. The men would go about that, um, get down in the pits and see them, you know, preparing the cars and whatnot. Um, and sprint cars for a young lad, then obviously they're pretty intimidating bits of kit, you know, hanging around those things and um, when you're really, really young. And, and I remember jumping in the, um, when there was loads of us to go, Dad used to throw us in the boot so we wouldn't have to pay as much to, uh, you know, get through the <laughs> through the gate and you park the car up on the top of the hill and, and, and watch it all, which was just sensational. And I suppose watching on TV was was Formula One then. I think you know. I remember. I think it was um, eighty five Monaco Grand Prix. I think Mansell crashed up the hill in the Lotus um, in the in the in the black JPS Lotus, and and that was actually I still remember that was my first Grand Prix that I watched. And um, and then of course touring cars. I watched obviously you know Dick Johnson and all the guys do their thing, which was sensational here at home. But yeah, I think the sprint cars and midgets, and that was really the you know one of my friends Matthew Hinton, his dad raced, and and that was the real open door I suppose for me guys like probably back then uh, Georgie Tatnell and, and Gary Rush and were you ever tempted to have a steer of one of those things have you? I never have um, I've been offered never had I've, yeah I suppose when I have come down here in the past I've just been sort of chilling out but I think the um, the opportunity would be sensational and you know, even my partner Anne now, she's she's busting to go to Knoxville, and so am I to go in America there and watch the Knoxville Nationals. And yeah, actually, you're right. George Tatnell, Gary Rush, um, you know, all those boys when the Kinsa boys used to come down to Australia too. Um, so yeah, that was that was brilliant. I mean, that was a sensational night out. It was a methanol, and it was all that you know beautiful <laughs> smell. And uh, yeah, I mean, you get covered in mud, obviously, and and 
super gladiatorial, right? It was really sort of old school, and you don't really, Boring. yeah, absolutely. It was a really amphitheatre of, of, of men and machine, and that was brilliant for me to, to see that. How'd you get your first go kart? What was it, and whatever became of it? Yeah, it was a Sprinter chassis. It was red, um, and it was just a little um, hundred cc, what you called a, a clubman, a clubman engine on it back then. Um, um, sorry, it was a, it was a J, yeah, the J, yeah, the J was the next one up. And uh, I know where that go-kart still is to this day. Yeah, it's still in Canberra. Yeah, right. a guy called Derek Duffy owns the, the chassis. Um, and actually, we bought it off him, so bizarrely, and then he bought it back off us. So it was a bizarre story with that cart. Um, so um, it had a pretty adventurous life, I think, early on when I was learning. So um, yeah, it's been through some uh, – <laughs> had a few uh, track limits issues. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was sensational little learning curve um in that number 27 it was um after my hero alan prost and um there was lots of other 27s with uh you know Gilles villeneuve and a few others here and there so um yeah it was uh it was a good cut. Did you have to have a discussion with your dad at, at any point? Obviously, you did things like Formula Ford in Australia and Formula Holden before you, you headed to Europe. But was there ever a point, you know, I know how humble the, the Weber family is, but was, was there a point where dad kind of said, OK, that's that's it for us, you know, like if you want to do this, mate, you've got to hit the road yourself? Hmm. I think out of carts, it was like I was at the time there was Formula V then um, and that was much, much more affordable and um, still had been a reasonable little staircase in the in the in the junior scheme of things as a young single seater driver trying to get through the ranks but dad sort of saw that as a bit of a, a wasted year i suppose um and he could certainly fund one year of formula ford racing which he did to a degree um which he did you know um and we did a bit of state series racing but he still wanted to do more national stuff and it was very much, you know, I had Andy Lawson, my go-kart engineer, sort of doing the car, um, and my mate Michael Foreman doing. So there was just sort of three of us doing the doing the car and the travel and all the rest of it. And it was we're just learning a lot on the fly, really. And, and it was a pretty tough first season. And then, um, yeah, the second year was with Yellow Pages. So without that sponsorship, there was no question about it. I think even after the end of the first year, it was going to be tough for, for us to continue. So. But I think Dad knew my commitment. My, you know, I was doing his head in with how much, how much determination I suppose, and how much fire I had, and what I needed to do. I mean, I left, I left um, Queanbeyan pretty early. Went to live in Kellyville in Sydney with Spencer Martin, actually. So, and then I used to commute to Oran Park to to race. Uh, sorry, to work, which was not exactly the easiest commute in a shitbox uh, Commodore wa- <laughs> wagon. Was um, that your first car? Yeah, uh, that was my second car. My dad was always clever, giving me low powered um, <laughs> machinery. So, my first car was a Toyota '69 Toyota Corona. Two speed, what a power! Two speed, two speed automatic, mate. Yeah, so um, yeah, that thing, that was a beast. Like that, that car went through plenty. I used to, I still wish I had it now. We used to do school runs at lunch with all the girls in the back and um, do some rally, rally. It was bench front seat, so we had like eight or nine people in it driving flat out through the bush out there. And there was another trip we did. We, um, I had a mate of mine who was a bit shy with the girls, and he wasn't had a bit late, bit of a late starter. But we had a ski trip the next day. But we took him out to Fish Week, where obviously we were the ladies of the night were and um, sort of gave him a, gave him a bit of a leg about gave him a head start and we'd finished there and it was late at night and we were um, the Toyota broke down on the bloody motor or the road back from Fishwick to Queenie so there was five of us on the side of the road trying to get this thing kicked over ready for, late for the ski trip but we got we got there in time and then um, yeah so the uh, the Toyota lived to fight another day and I think we couldn't get the, the smile off our, off our partner in crime's face for the rest of the trip but so the car saw a bit of action it was um the issue is a good weapon. 
Those early days, I think, were the, the real formation of, of Aussie grid, weren't they, mate, that determination. You've always been the kind of guy that, that wanted to benchmark yourself uh, against the best. When did the idea of coming to Europe uh, happen and, and how hard was that to stitch, all, you know, to stitch that all together? When I'd had the pretty successful season in 95 in Australia here in Formula Ford, um, that year I was keen to race... Uh, the 1600 Formula Ford Festival ended in 95 which is the biggest Formula Ford race in the world um, at Brands Hatch in the UK and um, Anne was you know she had a few contacts over there but it was obviously you know still to leave Australia and just go over there for a few weeks is no big deal at all you know you, you can do that but in terms of okay you can come back with your tail between your legs and it might not have worked out so um Anyway, that was the first time I wanted to go over there having read Autosport magazines that are two weeks old, um, you know, <laughs> down at the Queen Bee News Agency, waiting for them to come in each day. They're not here yet. Okay, they're not here yet, not here yet. So sort of reading about who you might race against and, and what's going on, which I was very keen to do. Um, and probably a bit impatient too, I think, to leave Australia. I wanted to get over there earlier than, than I was probably getting ahead of myself, to be honest. But um, I think that's... The 1600 race. There was two. There was two engine categories at the festival at that period. The 1600 and the 1800. And obviously, 1800 was the the top notch category, and 1600 was the cars and the engines that I was familiar with from Australia. And everyone said that I'd get I'd get hosed in the 1600 because there were so many specialists in the UK, mm. um, which there was, um, and and is and. Um, I couldn't do that. Well, they just said, look, it's not going to happen. We can't get the right sort of car for you. And it was all just too hard basket. So we're a bit disappointed, to be honest. And and then I said, well, at least we've got to go back with a test under our belt. And, and to be honest, you know, Anne and I, we worked our, worked our nuts off at least to get a drive to go and then at least head back to Australia with some sort of knowledge of how we might move things forward for, for, for 96. And then um, I drove the 1800 car at uh, Brands, at, sorry, at Snedderton. And a day later, Ralph Furman, who's the boss of Van Diemen uh, Formula Ford chassis, said that um, you can do the 1800 Formula Ford Festival, which was like, which was a big deal. And um, so I finished third in the first festival that year and then, um, well, in my only festival. And um, he said, come back next year. And I was a very, very heavily subsidised drive for the year after, which was bloody lucky really because um the aussie peso wasn't doing doing too well back wasn't doing doing too well back then at 33 33p to the dollar so um yeah so in the end um that's how that sort of first transition worked and then i moved yeah then i moved over there i mean i went over there and and um yeah lived with uh with ann's mum the three it was i was in a box room and um it was yeah with the first the first sort of year was was really tough going what you have back then, little Ford Fiesta, and were you doing driver training like you were in Australia? How did you sort of make ends meet? Yeah, I did, yep. It was uh, Ford Fiesta 1.1, bought it off some dodgy geezer in Essex, and um, yeah, so it was whatever, right 600 quid, which I probably paid 300 quid overs for it. But um, yeah, but again, that thing, I just got so, so fluky with my little, you know, chic box, chic box road cars. They always hung in there. Obviously, it was a little front wheel drive, and so it wasn't, I couldn't be too adventurous with it. But um, <laughs> that did a lot of mileage. Yeah, I was a driving instructor. Um, we were then moved to Norwich, which was closer to the Van Diemen factory, and that was a bad commute for anywhere. I mean, Norwich is doesn't matter where you know that A11 is it's a suicide road. That that mm. road's a single file. Well, it's a bit of your carriageway now, but back then it was just when you're in a gutless. Yeah, mm. it's so dangerous in a gutless, a gutless car and doing 50-50 moves past trucks and trying to get to you know run run different um, you know how quick you get to sort of Brands Hatch or wherever Alton Park or whatever for forty three. 
pounds a day was um yeah it was uh but you just you just had to do it i mean it was it was what needed to be done and you know i knocked around with great guys and met so many good friends and unfortunately some are you know, like dan weldon you know met him and worked with him and um yeah had some good fun times so it was a is it they're the things that are making of you that sh- it shows you how how hungry and determined you have to be and and it requires um, and tests your resilience and that's what's very important. You did. It's a great thing that young drivers can find online. You mapped out, I think, with Annie back back then a proposed kind of career line and it had mm. different options which way you could go. The ultimate goal, the focal point was always was always Formula One. But for a lot of people, there are detours mm. along the way. So you'd yeah. gone through Formula Ford and, you know, F3, Allen Docking, things like that. But, but Mercedes... You get to drive. I can recall going with with Cam McConville and Murph and, and others to Laguna Seca in '98 and seeing yep. you race. What was mm. that car like at first? Yeah, I mean, I first drove that car in uh, July '97 at the Red Bull Ring, and um, I mean, I did feel a little bit out of my depth, to be honest, because it was only only eight months before I was racing Formula Ford. You know, so then like it was like I was a bit old for some categories, if you like, and then this opportunity was like all of a sudden shit I'm so young to be in this car now like at whatever I was 21 was a little bit you know inexperienced to say the least in terms of what cars are driven up to that point but AMG as you know they rang me and, and there was a few um, illnesses further up the food chain in terms of Gerhard Berg was missing some Grand Prix so then that meant Alex Wurtz who was an AMG Mercedes driver at the time was replacing the Benetton and they had a hole to fill so I was between myself and Roberto Moreno, which I thought was totally bizarre how that would work. But mm. I mean, they wanted to get some young guys in the in the in the ranks there, and they loved British Formula Three at the time. I mean, I know Gerd Ungar and Norbert Haag and and Hans Werner Olfrecht at the time. They loved the quality of guys coming out of British Formula Three with Dario Franchitti, Jan Magnus, and all those guys. So um, the car itself was some I mean, seven point two liter V twelve. It was a beast. I mean, it was... Um, 730 yeah. kilowatt or something? Yeah. It wasn't crazy. Yeah. It, was, it, oh, it was so much horsepower. So, um, and torque. I mean, the torque, I never had something that would just... I mean, the, the, yeah, the most power I had up to then was like 300 with it. With a, so it was nearly... It was double and change what I've ever experienced, which was which was a lot. Um, and downforce and and I suppose just the environment too, you know, the you know sitting in a closed cockpit which I'd never done before. I'd always been an open-wheeler driver, so, you know, behind the windscreen. And I remember driving that car the first time. Alessandro Nanini um, had been driving it the day before, and he had a um, helicopter crash years before, and he had a prosthetic arm to change gears with. So the, the gearbox, the way the situation was set up with it, like a push-and-pull sort of interesting sort of gearbox situation. So for an abled driver, which I normally was um, <laughs> it was an interesting cockpit as well so there was just lots of things for me to get used to in a short time and um, and you spend hours in that thing I mean that was the other thing with sports car racing just like it just went on and on and on <laughs> compared to Formula 3 or Formula 4 races so you soon l- learnt about being comfortable in a racing car for the first time where other racers were like for 25 minutes half an hour now we're like looking at sort of you know two and a half hour three hour stints which mm. was uncharted territory for me but good mentors around you then made some mm. some very famous names that that I guess helped shape you in those early years. Didn't they? Oh no question, Rusty. I think the Bernd Schneider uh, absolutely was was brilliant for me because um, I mean up until then I was very very arrogant on telemetry and data because I wanted to really work it out myself. Particularly in Australia, I was useless with you know just accepting that other people could do something better, and um, I would see it as a bit of a. I suppose a shortcut and cheating that I would need to use someone else's 
ideas or data or, or ways to skin a cat to get to get the job done and stop the stopwatch earlier. And Burnt was into me very early about you know making sure that I turn pro on that side of it so when you're out of the car he was he was very much um a big a big brother in terms of and fitness he was a big he was very disciplined in the two in the true german way of you know getting lean and getting getting stronger and and you know obviously big mileage on the running and just getting my head around all that and then but also on the technical side working with the team and and making life just generally easier for yourself instead of making it harder for yourself and keep driving around problems let's let's start to polish polish yourself up in terms of the professional so burnt was Burnt was sensational, and Keith uh, Vandergren, who was the head Bridgestone tyre technician at the time, who did a lot of work with Miles Schumacher in Formula One after that, and you don't realise again at the time the exposure to ama- amazing people, but it was great knowledge for me at a young age then to have that for the rest of my career. So the car that we were talking about to begin with was the was the CLK, the CLR that followed made headlines in 99 at, at Le Mans. I mean, it was, mate, it had, it was lower in overall height, wasn't it? Less drag. You did a stack of testing beforehand too, 35,000 Ks or something. Yep. What went wrong at Le Mans that year? So I think, importantly, that year, um, there was no other sort of races in the calendar, so to, so to speak. So um, with the previous, the CLK, we had to do... Um, there was a championship, the FIA World yeah. Championship around the time. So then that was sort of dropped or Mercedes sort of pulled out and, and we're just going to focus on Le Mans. So they made a Le Mans racing car. It was just, the, the CLR was built just for, just to go racing at Le Mans. Uh, V8 engine, much, very, very different uh, power plant, very, supposed to be very efficient. Um, and that year at Le Mans, we were up against, I mean, it was a very, very, very competitive Craft, Unbelievable. Yeah. We had mm. Nissan, you had BMW, you had Porsche, you had Toyota. Um I think Audi were there with an open car, with I mean open cockpit car. So it was very super competitive, and everything went well. Testing was going well. We did a huge amount of mileage in Fontana, um, which was you know with the bank circuit in terms of getting the engine um, loads right for for durability testing, um, and we went to the pre-test, uh, which is always a, traditionally a month before Le Mans. and we got smoked. We got absolutely got our ass kicked, and we were slow. You know, basically everywhere it wasn't like just one sector like if you look at the Porsche the Porsche lap itself if you look at the last sector is made up of a lot of fast corners with Porsche curves and karting yeah. and all and the four chicanes and sort of it's um it's got a lot of fast corners in it so you can break that down and then the other and, and the middle sector is just basically the big the big stop chicanes with huge high speeds every time and we were pretty much slow everywhere you can't we couldn't really target one sector we said okay well it looks like we're we're Basically, we're down on power. So that was the first thing that really hit us with that car was we, we had a real wake-up call that we were down on power and more like, well, if, if we can do an extra lap, which at the time was, I think, 12 laps was was relatively competitive, if we can stretch it to 13, then we might be, on fuel fuel economy, we might be a chance to get some of this lap time back just purely less stops in a 24-hour race. And then it turned out the BMW and a few others, they were still going to be going to 13 anyway. So it was like, we, we had no advantage. So then they panicked. So after that test, they, they absolutely panicked and said, okay, we need to strip some more aerodynamics out of the car. So we need to be, at least let's attack sector two at Le Mans. Let's get quick on the straights and deal with the last sector as the race sort of goes on because we thought that the Bridgestone tyres were going to be um, betting in a lot more on the circuit because Michelin were very strong there and we're on Bridgestones and if the race continues to go on Bridgestones we'll get a little bit more competitive than that within the corners so stripped all the arrow out we went to Hockenheim the old Hockenheim track which was super super quick as probably some people remember but without the chicane so Burnt and I again Schneider we went there and we tested without the chicanes doing 350k an hour and 
we're just trying to get the car as trimmed out as possible and get the slippery uh, yeah, absolutely yeah. as yeah. fast as possible all good test went okay so we go back to Le Mans on Thursday night then I had the first we had the first flip to see an accident of these proportions you just have to fear the worst the moment it happens by the time the rescue crews got out there into the trees and he was some yards from the track well what saved him here is that the car landed on the belly pan with the engine and gearbox hitting first it didn't hit trees it went into soft earth and that undoubtedly is what meant that he came out with a little bit of bruising no other injuries and he was the most relieved man around we worked out well we were working out very very slowly in in the Germans were working out slowly anyway the drivers were working out real fast but the Germans were working out very slowly this car was unstable at certain speeds so um, aerodynamically you get behind another car in a tricky window or pocket of air or whatever and, and the car would get very light and it would flip so basically we did not enough mileage at all with that aer- aerodynamic configuration so that's why the car was very dangerous and um, obviously I had the second flip the second day afterwards um, so huge shunts and then my teammate Peter Dumbreck flipped in the race so the car was a disaster in the end. By regulation, there was a, cu- a few cars that did flip under that regulation. So Porsche lost the car with Yannick Dalmas in Road Atlanta. Um, so and and uh, tragically, Michael Alboreto got killed in um, in Lauta Ring, I think, in the um, in the Audi uh, with a puncture, and then it flipped. So in the right rear. So those cars were unstable at super high speed, but we just did a homework late and it was down to horsepower because mm. if we were up on power we would have kept the downforce in the car but we basically stripped all the load out of it and when you get that quick the car gets unstable Does Mark Webber as a young bloke back then compartmentalise that? Did you relive it? Was it like how tense did it get with Merck? I mean that's a pretty heavy point in your career too, mm. it? Massive yeah I mean it was tough times because I said to them like I'm never going to drive this car again I mean I can't to have this these accidents and the trust was, was really tested so that program stopped and then Norbert um, I mean it was a really tough year 99 for me because um, I then was sort of out of well I was out of a job because they were keen for me to do DTM which I wasn't overly keen to go and do DTM and then Norbert Hargus headed Mercedes Benz Motorsport at the time Um, Greg Moore was leaving Foresight um, IndyCar team um, he'd signed a deal with Roger Penske and there was going to be a seat open at Foresight and um, and Dre- Greg tra- tragically got killed in Fontana that year in the Foresight car in the last race. So um, it was just, and I was at Road Atlanta that year, and it was like phew, checking, and I'm just like, I want to go to IndyCar either. So the whole thing was just really, really brutal six months on sort of direction. And Eddie Jordan was a real saviour, to be honest. Eddie was was great, sort of introducing me to Stoddy, and then got a few, got just got the fire going again. And I'd go to the factory every day at Jordan and do his head in to try and get a bit of <laughs> test drive in the Jordan. And he just, you know, we still laugh about it to this day, Eddie and I. But um, yeah, I think I stopped him at a petrol station, and uh, well, he was stopped at a petrol station. Then I sort of. Yeah, got out of the car and cornering <laughs> again. So, uh, yeah, so that's how desperate I was at that time. So you get into Formula 3000 and you kind of get the eyes back on on Formula 1, some, you know, some ripper results in, in F3000. Where was your first F1 test? Recount it for us. And the first... <laughs> the first things that kind of went through your mind. Obviously, you, you, you experienced some good power and aero in, mm. in that Merc, but... Getting to drive an F1 car for the first time, this boy from Queenbeer. Yeah, uh, it was Barcelona, and it wasn't in the best Formula One car, but it's still a Formula One car within the, within the Arrows. And um, 
I think what hits your rusty straight is just the power to weight. I mean, the power to weight ratio is just ridiculous. The cars are so, so light. And um, you're literally like the change of direction wherever you want to put the car. Um, I mean, you just, for you to get ahead of the car and put the car on the limit within the first half a day is really tricky because mm. it just takes time to, to get comfortable with that type of car and you know the consequences also if you go off the road are, are quite are quite big because you don't realise I mean you feel everything feels relatively comfortable until you might have a moment and then obviously things you know it, it's everything's always happening very very quick um, in an F1 car so I think the exposure um, at that speed and then also physically you work out really quick, like your neck, your shoulders, your lower back, like everything just starts to load up if you haven't quite got the seat right. So I just remember um, hitting the throttle for the first time, leaving the pits and obviously your head being pushed back to the back of the headrest, hitting the brakes and you're like, you know, you've got to hold your head back and it's just like all your senses have been abused, you know, and just how intense it is. Um, And it was... I mean, it's like I've never. Obviously, you're not going to sit on the end of a bullet in terms of a missile or whatever. But just feel like you're just, you know, it was it was incredibly aggressive. The car was just so aggressive, and for you to get ahead of it, and the noise too. I mean, back then we had, you know, obviously with the V10 engines and and, and the horsepower they're putting out. Um, you know, even when they're warming the car up in the garage, you're like, you know, you've got to you're going to control that thing. Like it's like it's absolutely, you know, it's like, you know, when they're buzzing away in the garage and you're like, okay, so it's a step and it's not for everyone. I mean, some people get in them and they just can't, and it's just coming at them a bit quick and always to find that last half a second is is really, really challenging. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a great time. Did you ring your dad? What'd you tell him? Yeah. Oh, I said, <laughs> these things are just insane. I don't know how they drive them. You know, I mean, you know, you 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 really still there's still doubts there because you're just like I mean how are you going to drive one of these on the limit for two hours how are you ever going to do a Grand Prix um, and I actually remember Sebastian Vettel exactly having that same thoughts when he came to test when he was at Williams um, when I was there and he he did the first like he did like I think 25 laps in Hareth and he just said like it's not for me I'm never going to get on top of one of these things Whoa. like how am I going to drive yeah how am I going to get on one, top of one of these things so and that's how it should be that's how F1 should be it should be like. It the should be intimidating. Yeah. It should be tough. It should be like, you know, okay, we've got simulators and all the rest of it. Now the guys have got a bit more of a leg up, but it still is not the same to driving the real thing. And, and it should be extremely exclusive. It should be very, very um, difficult and not for everyone, you know. And that's uh, what I explained to Dad was like, you know, um, I think it went all right, but I'm not sure how we'll get, you know, <laughs> you know the next opportunity is like, yeah, you, you still, you've got, a, you've got a lot of homework to do for sure. So the Formula One dream is... is uh, is back on track there, no doubt, with lots of lots of challenges there. There's uh, testing, obviously, with with Benetton, but O2 is the opportunity with with Stoddy and and really the they were the minnows of the team. You put your balls on the line big time for that, didn't you? And mm. and Australia ultimately was a fairy tale with mm. that fifth place finish. But I'm not often sure that everyone understands how, how much you stuck your neck out in that scenario. Mate. Yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, I was um, I think it was about a million quid in the red with with Stoddy. I mean, he was he was also had some F1 testing lined up with um, with Tom Walkinshaw, which didn't exactly turn out to be the easiest relationship for Tom and Stoddy either in terms of that other other business issues. So it was uh, I was caught up in some of that. Um, and anyway, the, the first contract was three races. So I had Australia, Malaysia and Brazil um, were the first Grand Prix that year in 02. No guarantees and, uh, beyond that. No, nope, nothing. And, um, and, and Flavio was putting a lot of pressure on Ron Walker then 
then to say, come on, you you know, tight Aussies, you always talk a good game about a race, but you never support your drivers and rah-rah. So, you know, Flavio was giving Ron a hard time. And, and then, like you say, Melbourne just was... You know, when we got those points, obviously there was a tremendous amount of money for Stoddy financially. So um, with the with the constructors' position or constructors' points, even to get two points, the fifth place back then was really really tricky. And um, and that night it was probably Malaysia was pretty much agreed. Okay, you're going to do the rest of the season. You know, you'll keep you in here, and um, irrespective of what comes out of Australia. And then Ron knew that knew that as well. So it was it was uh, you know Ron was also savvy to understand that they were going to move me. So. Um, yeah, and Alex Young was my teammate. Was from Malaysia. He was paying for most of the, all the his sponsors were paying for most of the, the the operation of the team. So it was a it was it was great to have that opportunity to start an F one and even as early as sort of I think it was Barcelona time. You know, Nicky Lauda and Flavio were talking about you know Jaguar. You know, within within also the sort of summer. Um, yeah, it was like pretty much in Canada. Um, so six months in, having had just a three race contract, I was pretty much signed for Jaguar for three years hereafter. Let's just we'll come back to the the progression in F one for a second. I just want to just recount the Albert Park race for a moment because you qualified eighteenth, mm. you come through to finish fifth. I mean, they let you get on the podium, which I mean, <laughs> only the top three are ever allowed to do that. I mean, it was really special, <laughs> insane. As the race unfolded, mate, what things was the car? What were you worried about with the car? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't exactly the finest piece of engineering, um, the Minardi. It was a bit of a – so we had an old Peugeot engine in it. Um, Asia Tech, exactly, yeah. With a, with sort of the DNA was, was, was a Peugeot. It, it did a grand total of 16,000 revs compared to, like, the 19 grand that the BMs and the Ferraris were at the time. And they gave me a big uh, – they call it a party mode now, 16.7, with another 300 <laughs> RPM in qualifying, which was a complete joke. Um and uh, which the, the Frenchies thought was amazing, which I thought was rubbish. Um, so we had only done 17 laps in a row up until testing at that point. So this thing was so fragile. I mean, the car was... It wasn't... It wasn't... Uh, hadn't done enough mileage. Simple mm. as that. Um, and, you know, when the Italians and French meet on most things, it doesn't really turn out that well. So this was the <laughs> car that was had all of that combination and a bit of an Australian driver, let's say, an Australian team boss, but... Um, so off we go the start and it was a huge shunt the first corner but um, pretty early in the race it became apparent that if you just finish this race like which was a goal anyway like let's just circulate as, as fast as I can of course and do what we can mm. but we're having problems with um, a little bit of the the hydraulic system was 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 struggling a bit with pressure and also the um, we lost the differential control as well so I have a huge amount of single wheel spin the, the, the locking system on power was not working so I had a lot of single wheel spin which was a disaster, and I think for one of the pit stops, also the pit limiter, um, the fuel flap wasn't linked to the pit limiter. So when I arrived, the the the, the fuel um, flap for the for the nozzle was was staying closed, and so the guys had to then. Um, I remember John Boy Walton was the team manager. He was shouting stuff out. Good, experienced old boys, no longer with us, unfortunately. Good bloke, and um, he just simple you need some common sense obviously just unscrew it like just get a freaking screwdriver the Italians were jumping up and down like you know maniacs and um, I was looking in the mirror going we just need fuel just yeah. put some fuel in it somehow snap it off whatever just lift it snap this thing off do whatever I was nearly trying to you know but um, anyway we got fuel in it in the end and off we went and um, yeah and the car was just 
was alarms everywhere. It was kicking off. It was not happy at all. And then Mika Sala was closing on me with the last few laps to go because he had a rough first lap with the Toyota. And that car was quicker than us. It had a lot more power. It was just a faster car end of subject. But um, and Stoddy radioed through and said, look, under no circumstances should you let him pass. I'm like, okay. So on the grid, Stoddy was saying, be fine if you finish. And now it's like um, the difference between fifth and sixth was a big deal for him. So... So I thought, okay, Stoddy doesn't want me to let him pass at all. Um, so, But I was calm. Like, I thought, you know, I didn't put Salo on a pedestal at all. I thought, I'm just going to, you know, when he arrives, I'm going to make it really hard for him. Um, it's my first race. Also, I was not comfortable in the car at all. I had, like, my knees were purple, my elbows were purple. The car was too small for me. Um, and it was really, you know, I needed to muster up all the sort of focus I could to, to get this thing home and... And um, Salo, I knew in turn three there's some radiator coolant there from the whole race, which um, Jensen Button got harpooned in turn one on the first lap. So that corner was out of action, turning in late for the whole Grand Prix. Um, but Salo, I blocked quite often in turn three and then ultimately took the bait on the outside and then he spun on the all, which was sensational. So, um, yeah. So got it home and um, as you say, mate, then the podium was mayhem, was carnage, the whole grid was, I mean, it looked like a, you know, won the bloody world championship the way it was all carrying on. What a reception Weber is receiving here. The efforts of Paul Stoddart with the tiny Minardi team brought to fruition on his debut by the 25-year-old Australian fought his way into Formula well, 1. everybody, fantastic job. I mean, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> giving a little burnouts as he comes down into the pits. What a treat for the Australian fans. And, uh, yeah, because I said to Ron at the time, I'm not going on the podium. No, that's a joke. Like, it's for Michael and all the boys. And it's my first race. Like, I mean, I'm not going to be like a big boy in town going to do that, having finished in fifth. He said, you get up on that bloody podium. So we went up there and Stoddy loved it with the champagne. And, and such a great uh, sight to have them up on the podium. It's appropriate right now. It is. It is. And there he is. A man whose life has perhaps just changed. And to be fair, Michael was funny because he, I think Ferrari noticed if they're going to get any column inches the next day, they need to have a photo together. So I've still got that photo now where Michael and Sabine, his manager, come down and, um, well, his PA come down and you know, had a photo with, with the Minardi guys and that was hilarious just because Michael won the race. This is Greg Rust and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know. The term car guy you often hear when you wander around pit lane. It's reserved for those who truly love not just the contest of racing, but also have a strong connection to the wheels underneath them. Garth Tander will leave you in no doubt about which side he's on. At the time, it was quicker than a V8 supercar. So from the exit of turn two to the hump at the exit of the cutting, it was a second and a half a lap faster than a supercar in just that phase of the track because it had so much torque, mate. It would pull trees out of the ground that had that much torque. But it was not that fast coming down Conrad. We only do 255, 260, and most of the time we were half throttle saving fuel because seven litre engine, mate, they drink fuel like it's going out of fashion. So most of the time we're driving the car to fuel economy numbers. Yep. Car Guy. Listen to the full episode with Garth Tander here on Rusty's Garage. Opposite lock, a colloquial term for counter steering. Using oversteer to turn a vehicle rapidly without losing momentum. Typically costs time in circuit racing, but loved by rally drivers in speedway, drifting, and especially the fans. Oh, yeah, and it's heaps of fun. You mentioned before that, that early on in the Minardi chapter, the, the opportunity 
came up with with Jaguar, and we at Jaguar we get a, a sense of of your pace, your your potential, and you know podiums with Williams and things like that start coming up. Why, in your opinion, did the Williams thing sadly just not work out, mate? We had such great hopes. Mm. Jonesy had won the world championship, yep. Alan Jones, in nineteen eighty, and they got so much history, so much success in the sport. Yep. But it's just timing, mate, isn't it? They had a brilliant finish to the 04 season with the BMW and Montoya and, and uh, the FW26 was a great car and I drove that car and I thought, I drove it in winter testing in Barcelona in November and I thought, how easy is this thing? Like this is going to be so good. Like I was doing lap times that I was doing in the Jaguar every lap, like qualifying laps, just going, this thing's going to be, this is a beast in the races. Mm. And I just couldn't wait for the season to start. And there was a change of regulation that year with front wing and diffuser and for, for, for the 05 season. And um, so along come the FW27, which was not a good car. <laughs> so <laughs> disaster. I'm still a member um, being in the back of the garage at the Valencia pit, at the Valencia test and um, just thinking, my God, we were, we were like reasonably quick, but we had no fuel in the car because I was still trying to get sponsors because now when the BMW when the, when BMW left, there was a lot of German partners that were starting to leave the team, mm-hmm. you know, Allianz Insurance Company and HP and a few of those guys. So it was, it was pressure was on Williams and I could feel that in winter testing already. Like I was never really been involved in the situation of desperation so early. So, um, which was quite an interesting um, experience for me because, yeah, they were getting me to, you know, we were running as I say not underweight but we're running pretty light to try and do artificial times knowing this is just a short term gain for a really painful road um, down the line so the car itself yeah the 27 was aerodynamically just poor really that was the biggest thing aerodynamically we hadn't done our homework and and we struggled and, and they went from that was the start of a really tricky phase for Williams and um, yeah I mean Hindsight should have went to Renault, but because um, Renault hadn't won any races at that point, you know they hadn't had the the, the CV in the previous three years. The form card was Williams looked strong, looked looked good, and um, and I wanted to drive for Frank and Patrick, um, but I went against Flavio's wisdom and Renault then with a form team. So that was a a bit of a kick in the nuts because um, you know I would have started the sort of I think I would have started the Red Bull wins if you like and the Red Bull nature sort of at a much earlier age instead of being as I was in you know obviously later on I was obviously a bit older but um, it was would have been nice to be a Grand Prix winner which I'm pretty sure I would have won races um, in the Renault but um, it didn't it didn't happen I was with, with Williams and we were we were second off everywhere we went that phase two obviously it, it became I mean Fisichella had success and, and you know Fernando Alonso yep. And, yep. and that sort of stuff when you and I bumped into one another at the I think it was the, the Chinese Grand Prix in, in Shanghai at around that time the, the notion of going to Red Bull had, had cropped up it was well advanced um, you're always a guy that's that's spoken about um, good team, good people, and and you know you clearly could see they weren't a team in their infancy, but it was still very early days for them. But they were clearly going the right way. What got you over the line there? Um, I think it was Adrian Newey, to be honest. I mean, David Coulthard should take all the responsibility for that. DC was 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 instrumental with um, working with Dietrich Mateschitz, the boss of Red Bull, to say, look, if you want a fast track to success, you need to get the best designer in the world um, he's not cheap but if you want to get him then you know you got to start working on him now so and I know that did happen um, obviously before I got there so um, 
DC and I were reasonably tight, not as tight as we are now, but David and I knew each other and DC was like, yeah, it's, things are on the move here. Um, and Flavio as well, that was the second bite of the cherry with him saying, look, this time you're going to listen to me, but, you know, Red Bull, you know, going to do things right. And it was hard to believe because it was like, I'm just going from a Williams scenario to pretty much run the, we're at the same level at that point. It's just like, I'm just changing for the sake of it, you know, and... Um, and yeah, so obviously I did sign for Red Bull, but it was more, I think it was Adrian um, and David that were saying, look, this place is going to rock soon. We just need time. And um, so that was the deal done for me in terms of seeing. And and Adrian, from what I hear um, after that, you know, he was also, you know, pretty keen to get me as well. He was, nice. he was pretty strong on, in getting me in the team. So that was, that was, that was good. 09 is is the year that Aussies kind of um, look at fondly because it's it's when you had your first win, you know, Nurburgring and and that race, mate. Mm. It, it, people forget you had a drive through that you had to deal <laughs> with. I mean, it, it was RB five is a great car, but it was you still had lots of challenges thrown at you, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Um, I mean, it was an interesting year that year because the. Braun car with Jensen and Rubens, they started with a, basically a blown diffuser from the first race. So they had, I think JB won the first six races in a row, um, and then they never won a race again. When when we had when we used our blown diffuser, so Adrian was furious that um, he missed that. He still believes that there was good chat between Ross and Jean on on the blown diffuser in terms <laughs> of regulation. But um, so that's uh, that's his take on it. But in terms of um, that car, once we got going, uh, it was really at Silverstone, and I was so sore after Silverstone that Seb got the win there because I, I felt that the qualifying, the whole race build-up was, was um, you know, I felt I should have got the job done in Silverstone and um, finished second there. And then we went to, to uh, Germany. I said, OK, well, I need to get the national anthem, the Australian national anthem played in Germany here. So uh, whatever happens. <laughs> so I qualified on pole and, yeah, touched Rubens off the line and... Um, and yeah, got to drive through. But the way the race was unfolding, um, you know, I rang Kyron up, my engineer at the time, and and I'm just saying, you know, how we, you know, I'm just like, because obviously there was different strategies going on. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I was heavy on fuel and trying to make things work at the time. And he's like, mate, you are absolutely hanging in there more than enough. Like this is looking sensational, and it just worked out. I was always strong on Nurburgring. Anyway, it was a really good track for me. It's sort of a, a track which is, it's always got a generally a lot of understeer in it. So. I like a strong front end, so that was a track which which always suited me. And the RB5 was a really gorgeous car. I love the tyres too. The Bridgestones were beautiful mm-hmm. to drive on. Um, and yeah, it was it was a it was a sensational Grand Prix. Mark Webber, you are a Grand Prix winner. <laughs> I mean, those cars are gorgeous. I mean, that that car was 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 sensational sensational car and again I think I won in Brazil that year as well so it was a nice it was a beautiful beautiful car did it have any little little traits that you got used to with it I mean did you do things like give it a name I know Seb used to name his cars yeah, and did. stuff like that yeah Seb named all of his cars yeah no I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't name any of my cars but um um look it was it was the early days of I suppose um, we did a lot of work with uh, you know like flexi front wings and aeroelasticity and all those type of things which was obviously clearly um, right on the edge for regulation but within because they kept passing the test so um, you know Adrian was more than happy to send enough wings down to sort of park for Maine so knock yourselves out guys do what you need to do Mm. Um, so that was I think that was um, 
and I loved help. I loved helping develop um, a lot of that culture, and and that was fun within sort of the aerodynamic situation within the team. It was I think that was our real eye opener for us in terms of. I suppose the research and the tooling we put in place in the R&D around understanding what we would need then for the RB6 and, and, and pushing that forward. So that was that was fun working with, with the guys on that, um, mainly in, in, in aerodynamic terms. So, yeah, I understood those cars really well. Everyone talks about you and Seb, and I know it's been well documented in your book and, and things like that. One point of view that I thought was very interesting, Neil Crompton went to the the uh, Grand Prix at Spa and, and got to hang out with you um, I think it might have even been 2013 your, your final year and he was taken aback by how good Seb was away from the mm. media yep. spotlight yep. what was it really like between you guys and is it is it cool now? Look we're good now, um, at the time it was I mean 2010 was was was, was pretty toxic um, we had the turkey shunt which wasn't which wasn't good Um it was also tough with Helmut because Helmut was running the team effectively with um, in the early days there. It was it was testing times. Obviously, they funded him all the way through, and then obviously he was it was a sensational talent and still is. Um, and I was a bit of a washed up old dog and um, a porky a porky old dog too, a little bit a little bit heavy. I was trying to be as lean as I could, but um, so it was all those things. We, I mean, it was just it was challenging, but that's what you want. A Formula One's like that. You want it to be the hardest category in the world um, and at the end of the day when you get to that last one or two guys you know that Formula 1 has a few layers actually it has like arriving and then it has you know hanging out with the mid pack and scraping through points every now and again then it goes Grand Prix victories you know when you've got to win every weekend and it's 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 like I suppose with Roger and Rafa Nadal whatever it's that last few guys whether it's Lewis or Seb or Fernando knocking around those guys every weekend it's it's tough yards and that's how you want it but it's like wow does it give you some sleepless nights sometimes and you've got to work out how you're going to beat them so yeah we had our tough times um, but there was also times where it was totally over, uh, you know hammed up in the media and I think the, the German press in Bild site which is the gutter, yep. gutter press paper over there and they used to slate me a lot apparently I didn't obviously read it, read it I was like I couldn't understand it anyway but um, I had it translated sometimes and there was one race I think we flew back actually um, together on a, on, a, well, on a private jet actually from, uh, from, from India to to Abu Dhabi and we were just together with Seb and his wife and and we landed and the papers were you know into us and they thought we were yeah so they were so 180 off which was a laugh because um you know they were just so incorrect so with our relationship so in in we were it was positive and they were saying it was negative so yeah so we're good now obviously um yeah on the sly I'm helping him buy a few Porsches so it's all good fun yeah <laughs> the irony uh, I, I guess mate is that I mean it's a people game mm. but you you actually need two balls don't you you need two people to be competitive like that mm. to drive uh, the, the, the team mm. but managing that for, for the team is is a big challenge isn't it? it's tough you know that last part um, is hard and we've seen it time and time again where you want two guys pushing the hell out of each other to get it was nearly an ideal scenario for, for Rebel because we sort of we did that sort of to getting the team back into that dominating window mm is is fine but then when you're the only two left like we saw with Nico and Lewis there's carnage you know mm. stuff does happen and you've got this divided dynamic even within the team you know and you're, you're, you're micromanaging everything from the team's perspective in terms of you know there has to be parity everywhere with it. like it's just insane how protective the engineers get and how the mechanics are and you know well who's got the floor first who can build the car first like just even down to how much love and attention is going into building the car and and 
you know, selection of gear ratio, all just, it's just, there's no end of, 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 of challenges in to make sure the driver is feeling like he's the one that's getting the love, yeah, and, and the best chance to do the job. Um, so it is challenging and you need strong management in place to, to deal with that. And, and I think now Red Bull have that. At the time, it was none of them never been through that like Christian had never been in that scenario you know Seb had I hadn't none of us it was all new like how they what the hell we've got no one left now we're beating McLaren we're beating Ferrari and now we're going to beat the shit out of each other and it's like it doesn't work like it's hard and, and the driver's like we don't want to put the helmets on like we just we take it into our own hands you know so um, that's top flight sport um, and it's fine mid-pack float around points yeah teammates whatever but then when you get to the last part it's it can be hard on the whole team if i had a dollar for every time someone at a pub had asked me <laughs> is mark weber in the same car as sebastian <laughs> vettel i would have a fair bit of dough in the bank i mean yeah. fundamentally for your time at red bull can you just answer that were you in equal gear what was the game? as best they could do but i mean it's at times it's it, it is hard like mm. you know to to were they exactly the same spec on parts of course they were but mm. there is small fine details which can be flaw which might give a little bit more mm. downforce might be an engine that has two or three more horsepower they might and obviously these these, these thing ad, adds up would was it like that all the time probably not mm. um but was there times where I thought it was stretched a bit. Yes, it was. You know, I thought, well, you know, why is it like that? You know, why do I have to keep an eye on this stuff even, you know? Um, and I'd have to keep an eye on the chief mechanic, Kenny, um, who was, you know, he was in control of what parts went where on race weekends. And, you know, I had word every now and again that things weren't always as, as straight as they would have would have liked to have been from my side. Um, but, look, that's... And actually, sometimes you just cannot always produce... to have two or three identical of everything like it's nearly impossible mm. you know it's actually, I mean it's really 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 hard to have the quality control I mean it's phenomenal but when we're talking about we're down to the, like the last half a percent on everything like it's it's pretty hard wins at Monaco wins in you know another famous race the British Grand Prix it's awesome I mean, there's some special stuff there in your your career tally there in Formula 1 is there a car in that Red Bull range when you drove for them that's that you got a soft spot for that's a bit of a favourite yeah, I think the. I mean, the RB6 probably still is the the best car that I drove purely because I never really got on with the Pirelli tyres. I would love to have, but I mean, they were so challenging to to use, and they were so I thought, and they still probably are to a degree. We saw, um, you know, recent races in Formula One where the drivers are managing the tyres a lot, um, which you hate, I think. Don't yeah, you? and I think a lot of the guys do. We see it after the race, sometimes post race, in terms of how much they've got to manage them, um, which is, you know, I find it. We are arguably the best drivers in the world you, you you should be able to deal with everything which absolutely yes you should be able to should you be able to manage the pace and drive that slow and, and, and be able to ask to do that then obviously that was not always overstimulating so that had a, a knock on effect of your experience and your love for what car you drove so um, I think the best cars or the experience I mean the RB, RB, RB5 and RB6 sensational car on the Bridgestones they were you could just push every single lap flat out qualifying sensational I'm going to backtrack a little bit to the FW26 which I never raced but I tested which is the Montoya winning Brazil car that was whatever it was I don't know 580 car weight with 950 horsepower that was 
that was a beast. So yeah, and you know, I think the thirteen car, the Red Bull car, that was still that was that was still pretty. I mean, all the Red Bull cars were good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Adrian is, doesn't do many doesn't do many shit boxes, but um, in terms of the whole experience, I mean, if you look at tracks like Suzuka and Silverstone and those really really high speed, you still look back at some of those laps now and go, those cars were phenomenal. We missed that. V8, that mm. V10 engine. We absolutely do. The audio, the the, the drama, the sort of uh, the punch and, and and the emotion that comes from, from that. Mm. Uh, it's amazing as humans how much of a component that is for us. You know, if you go to an air show and you see a fighter jet, obviously it's like, wow, that's amazing. But obviously we're not going to go to too many glider shows and watch, <laughs> you know. I mean, you will like gliders, but in terms of silent anything, uh, a quiet concert... You know, we like music. We like, you know, hearing is a huge part of our emotion. Um, so having that, um, you know, Adelaide, we all remember the Formula 1 cars in Adelaide. We remember, the, you know, the V12s and then the V10s. And, yeah, those piercing piercing F1 cars when having 26 cars go to the first corner like that was was unbelievable. So the noise is down now. Yep, the noise is down. And, and that's um, something which we're slowly, slowly, slowly getting used to. I mean, if you go to a Formula E race, obviously, it's, it's another level, obviously, with no noise at all. You are a fiercely loyal guy and you stay loyal to Red Bull throughout your entire, um, that, that back end and successful end of your Formula One career. You're still loyal with Red Bull now, for that matter. But was there an option to go to Ferrari? There was all this mm. talk and how serious did that get? Very serious, yep. Uh, 2012, so had meetings in Monaco um, with Stefano Domenicali. It had been virtually agreed with uh, Montezemolo at the time. Um, so it was pretty much done, all agreed, um, until like then Montezemolo changed his mind. He wanted um, a one-on-one, so I wanted two years fixed as a contract, and he wanted one year and an option on the second year um, for 14, so it was 13 to 14. And um, I was, well, I won two years straight. Um, I don't want to be, you know, sitting here at Monaco after having done four months with the team and talking about whether the option's going to be taken up. And Fabio agreed, like he was he was on that. And then Bernie got involved and um, Bernie was really trying to make it happen as well with Montezemolo. And then um, it was around, so that was Monaco time. And then two weeks later, we had the Mo- Montreal Grand Prix. And I really, I remember getting out of the shower in the hotel there and I had a phone call with, with Fabio. And, and my gut feel was just like, I don't like the feel of this guy. I don't like the feel of it. Montezemolo, I'm not really sure they really want me. Um, and also I had to take some people with me from Red Bull as well. That was also part of the criteria. So we had some names which um, which I was working on as well to try and take from, from Red Bull. So I had to come with a package, which was all looking very good as well. Um, so that was fine. But I couldn't get my head around just doing one year. Um, and also the other huge scenario that made it more challenging for me is I had a handshake with Porsche. So Porsche, at the end of 12, I had a handshake with him um, in the car park at Stuttgart with one of the board members. Um, and I said that, yeah, in principle, I'll be I'll be here in 14, you know. So that 13 year was last year in F1, potentially, you know, had it been a Ferrari, like, so if I fast forward, you know, so that was all in my mind as well, going with Porsche. So, um yeah, so then after the British Grand Prix that year, it was funny because I went to the track that day. Fernando was texting me saying, um, are you on, are you on, what's happening? And I said, mate, it's looking average because Montezemolo's, you know, mm. moving this option around because Fernando was keen for me to come, but he was definitely more keen on some of the Red Bull personnel, I think, to make the <laughs> car go faster. Um, and um, I pretty much had made the announcement that I was going to stay at Red Bull. Um, and Montezemolo wanted to see me on the Monday in, in Marinello after... 
Silverstone that year and I told Flavio and Flavio said you're not going Just don't, let, we're not going to fall for that and um, so between Bernie, Dietrich and Montezemolo then I agreed to, to stay at Red Bull. So you invite a number of journos I was lucky enough to go to a, to a dinner in Melbourne uh, early in 13 I didn't kind of realise it at the time but in many respects it was kind of a thank you yeah. you'd made up your mind mate yeah. hadn't you 13 yeah. was the final year the sport yeah. was going to go through a regulation change yeah was it a difficult drug to give up? How hard was it to make that decision? Um, I wanted to stop still driving really well and I knew um, that there were certain things that I was used to be really good at um, that were getting harder to continue to do and I was starting to see that. The team was seeing it a little bit and, you know, 37, 38, you're sort of like, it's getting mm. in that window and um, I, I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to stop at a high level and even I mean Red Bull Dietrich was great he was like you know um, also that you know he Dietrich sat on it for like eight months he didn't tell anyone didn't tell a soul Dietrich was sensational he said look even if you change your mind then I want you to talk to us and, and you know there's always a seat here for you so it was sensational how good Dietrich was and he also said if you're going to anyone else but Porsche then I'd have problems but with Porsche I have no issue so he was very good with, with that and he's straight with his word like that it's not that's just not small talk it was like hey, if it was Mercedes he wouldn't be supporting me okay. so that was important and um, so I wanted to stop at the top mate and um, which as best I could and you know I'd been doing it a while and I started my Formula 1 career, career quite late you know like I had been on the road for quite a while yes I, I could have done maybe a few more seasons which then would have put you in the 250 bracket Grand Prix there's not many guys have done 250 mm. Grand Prix so 215 um, getting pretty tired you know it was it was getting harder and harder and harder to stay on weight like my weight was really critical at that time as well um, and I was borderline friggin anorexic for you know for 10 months of the year anyway it was the floor of the regulation yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah so the skin folds were measured all the time and that was getting so all you can have all these excuses but at the end of the day you've got to you've got to be the one that steps up and do, does that you know every, every, every two weeks so having been at the front and raced with the best guys and I thought okay well 13's enough. I've got that. I've got that done. There's a new regulation coming. Do I want to immerse myself in a, in a whole new bunch of regulations when I can go and do that with with Porsche and the sports car and get going? Maybe a year early, but definitely I was close. Like it was the right time to go. And um, do I miss it? Absolutely. Like nothing replaces F1. Nothing replaces. It. Like it, it's it's very hard to replace that. The team, the environment, the the mechanics, what they'll do for you, you know, just you see it's it's a real eye-opener when you leave F1 what level the team go to for their driver and what you're prepared to do for them. Um, it's exceptional. It's phenomenal. And um, to see them walk away from the car, you'll get no, I mean, you know, when they look at you and it's over to you, mate, there's no other, there's no better feeling from, and, and the millions of man hours that go into preparing that car for you, you know, holistically from all the departments, week in, week out, nothing will compare to that. And that's just the way it is. Like, you can't race Formula One forever. So you have to get your head around it. And um, yeah, so sure, I miss it, but um, I've got great, I mean, the memories, you know, for life. You go sports car racing, life kind of goes full circle. You're back to perhaps tackle some, mm-hmm. some unfinished business with a great. Mark in, mm. in Porsche, the 919. I mean, I was lucky enough to go and spectate at Le Mans in, in 2015, and I remember ringing my dad going, I was kind of lost for words because <laughs> they're, they're a bit like a scale electrics car, mate. They yeah. were so damn fast, they were so glued to the road, and the tech in them was yeah. remarkable. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a very brave concept, the 919. You know, so now we're talking hybrid. We've got a big, um, a big, well, electric motor on the front axle. We've got a combustion engine in the rear, so it's four-wheel drive. Um, getting those two synced together was was a challenge in the early days and the Germans were very big on working in simulation yeah it looks good like this or it's not in practice not like that mate you know we're going to wear tyres out we're going to it's going to be a handful to drive and so we had to work the interface from driver to simulation and and working hard on that and getting to believe what was right in the early days was was pivotal yeah, it was an, it was incredible. It still is. It was an incredible car. That car was 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 phenomenally successful, and I loved help again with a with it with a young team, I suppose, and not a blank checkbook, but a, you know, obviously funds was very very good. But you still have to you can burn some serious cash in the wrong areas if you're not focused on what you need to work on to make. Look, I said, guys, I used to take the stopwatch to a lot of me. This is what we're working towards. This is what we're here for. You know, we're not here for you know feathering each other's nests and, and making sure what you know. If there's guys in certain departments that aren't delivering, you need to understand why. You know, if there's some guys go to the track and I say to the boss, well, mate, he haven't spoke to him for nine months and he hasn't spoke to me for nine months. What if he's not here? Is he? Are we missing him? Well, mm. probably not. Well, we don't need him here. You know, like we've got to trim stuff up and get the fat out and go racing. We want races. We want racing mentality. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. And I think when we got there, we had two people in the aero department, which I'd flip my chips over that. And it's just like, you know, but the hybrid and engine and, and all the Porsche stuff and all the, all the vital organs that were awesome at, awesome at. And they were getting, you know, super excited about that because that was what was going to win Le Mans. That was going to what was going to win world championships. Um, so then we got that up to like 30 people and, and started to reinvest in areas where it was going to be more comfortable for us. I said, if we invest in these departments, there's going to be less mistakes from the drivers. The car's going to be more predictable. We're going to have an easier product to use in all conditions, even in the rain, at night, on slicks, whatever, you know. So that was fun. Um, and you just, with sports cars, you see how versatile they are and how tough they are. You know, they've got to handle so many scenarios, as, as you touched on in terms of Le Mans, one side of it, you know, the long straights and... You know, dealing with back markers, there might be a bit of contact here and there, and and then also operationally, you know, that's where Porsche were just exceptional. Even blew out into our way, and just in terms of how good we were in the pit lane, in terms of if we needed to change noses or rear ends, or that's also the winning mentality within within what we had to design there. The car, yeah, and the car design was designed like that. Like, okay, this is fine, but we also have to prepare for when the shit hits the fan how easy is this thing to work on if someone brings it back to the garage you know a bit busted up you know drive shaft for example the front front axle if you take a front corner off it's not just like pop a front corner you've got a drive shaft involved there and, mm. and it's hard like that's really really that's a nightmare but we had it pretty slick each corner could be done you know in around 12 minutes which was pretty exceptional oh. so yeah for the 919 tell people a little bit more about the car if, if my memory's right we're talking uh, v4 turbo but the the energy recovery systems were unbelievable in it and does that require a, a, a knack with driving because you're trying to balance all that stuff aren't you as you, as mm. you go yeah a very small capacity two litre v4 um it had a very sophisticated turbo system on it. Obviously, it was it was it was a you know turbocharged, which was which was where we got a lot of our power from. And then we had like a little AER system, which was um, AER system was another recovery. Um, it was a high velocity turbine, basically, which off the exhaust gas, which then would also um, charge the battery in the background. Um, 
So, and that was extremely difficult to get reliable. Um, and that was another probably 25% of the of the charging that we needed on top of the brake system. So um, without AR, you were knackered. So you needed that on top. It was a very efficient way to get energy back. Um, the money we spent on that, and it's also on some of our road, I mean, it was on the 918. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really nice piece of engineering which we could justify into our road car development too so um and to this day that's the it's the lowest quality part that's around on so they're doing the 919 tribute tour now and that part is the trickiest part to get and to build still so it's a really trick piece of kit and then braking wise so the way that you would regenerate or, or harvest um top the battery up on the off the braking energy so obviously the way you'd use the brake pedal um was was very important so if you use a lot of peak pressure initially then sort of you know wound your brake pressure off um instead of having like a bit more of a wet a wet pedal map so a little bit earlier on the brakes not so much peak pressure but hold the brake on a bit longer the the battery would love that or what we'd call the soc which is state of charge the state of charge of the battery would love that so you had to learn all of this stuff really really quick and often the engineers will be ringing you a lot because obviously if you hit traffic for example then your braking would be very very different so mm-hmm. that you wouldn't be charging as much or if you're in clean air the battery would be you know charging in a much more consistent way so that was a challenge and then it would rain and then you'd have a whole new cat- cat- you know mm-hmm. whole, whole bit different kettle of fish again so um, challenging car on the interface so you, you had to manage a lot from the car I mean a lot of radio there was a lot of radio for understanding all the systems and moving things around um, and you can set the car up with a balance too with all of that so how you would you know the regeneration on front and rear axles to make sure you can pull your understeer down and have some overs you know you could really move that around a lot so that was that was quite interesting um was it a joy to draw yeah it was in the end we we got it really you know once we got so the front diffuser to start with the 14 car was a disaster the whole front end of the car was we just weren't doing the right r&d we weren't getting the right um correlation from wind tunnel to car um and that was that was bad and then cfd so you know um the software to, to measure aerodynamics as well and computer com, computer fluid uh, dynamics and things like that was not was not working. So we got that much better in fifteen to sixteen, and we woke the front of the car up. Literally woke the front diffuser up in terms of how it would work, and then that brought me alive because I was then back into sort of more Formula One territory in terms of having a front end that was really strong and I could drive the car quick. Podium at Le Mans, you win the World Endurance Championship. Of, of all the things you've succeeded at, mate, how much did that mean to you? Yeah, the championship was was sensational, but I think the the thing that I take the most out of that whole program was I believe that you know without being blowing a bit of smoke up my my own ass, I suppose is the is I suppose I think I had one of if not the most impact on on making the car be as fast in terms of technical what we needed to work on and, and get the car working we had some great teammates so sensational endurance wise like Timo know what Timo Bernard and and, and and Libby and those guys were super experienced on that but in terms of actually getting the departments to knuckle down in areas that were going to move the stopwatch and make us do our job better I really enjoyed that um, I mean Lamar picks you I led the race every year there Lamar picks you in terms of how you're going to win or lose that race um, and uh, you know f- 15 was 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 tough BH got the penalty we had a 60 we had a 60 second dry, uh, stop go there um, and what was it uh, 16 with the water pump which we had a, we were leading there and the water pump was you know that was I know that still hurts Porsche this day because they, they really obviously you know I think you talk to the, the big wigs and they, they wanted me to experience a victory with Porsche which clearly I did as well but and that one really hurt them because we only we never had a water pump failure in that car but so I remember Timo coming to the bedroom wake me up and he was like in tears and I was like mate well 
it's not meant to be, buddy. You know, we, yeah. So that was it. The BH you talk about is Brendan Hartley, who these days, of course, is with Toro Rosso in uh, in Formula One. You mentioned in the early part of the podcast about uh, you know a potential opportunity with with IndyCar. I, I know. You were always um, very upfront with your mum, very upfront with Annie, that you were never going to go and do oval oval racing, and you remain true to that. Sadly, as you as you said, you lost some friends in, in Danny Weldon and a and a former teammate in, in in Justin Wilson. There, what about Bathurst, mate? Everyone mm. often wonders why you didn't have a crack at the one thousand. I mean, it's vastly different category. I know. I think that I mean I raced in Formula Ford, so I do know the track. Mm. But uh, in '94, um, I couldn't do it until I mean I suppose now is the only time because mm. when I was doing when I was doing Suzuka, always I mean I was in F1, forget it. I mean I can't do Bathurst when I was in F1, and then I went to sports cars, and it always was around uh, Fuji time, so yeah. it was always there was always a clash. Roland Dane always asked me. I mean Abu Dhabi, there was a few years where he's like, "Come on, you know where the phone, where where the where you know my phone number? Give me a ring, and we can sort of test out." And and I just thought that you know um, the cars are so the guys are so plugged into those type of car. I mean, maybe I will drive one one day, but in terms of actually, I think the frustration level for me in terms of how heavy the cars are, how how behave, yeah, yeah they behave. They're very you know they're very very. I mean, they are even the guys. So they're they're, they're like a docile. Yes. You know, ve- there's a lot of uh, travel, a lot of travel in them, and you know, I drive one reasonably okay. But in terms of being super, super quick, I mean, it would be mm. it, it it would be probably pretty challenging. And and I'm open to that. And even to be honest, even Porsche say, "Why don't you drive the GT car?" For the exact same reason. Like when you've come from the sort of muscle memory and and the frame rate of of the cars that I've been used to for like 20 years mm. or let's call it from 97 so to now yeah so a good part of 18 years when I've been driving have been 20 or 25 seconds a lap faster than that so that's a shift for for, for you to get your head round to put something where you feel like you're driving on the limit and doing a good job but you're still 25 seconds a lap slower than what you're used to mm. um, takes some doing so um I think the race is great. I mean, Bathurst is a sensational race. I love... Um, I'm frustrated with the safety cars. Now, obviously, over the top, it's like that. If anyone goes in, they have to have a safety car. But obviously, that's racing in general. There's just more and more safety cars, which which does my head in. But there's less um, green flag racing. But, um, I mean, it's always good to watch. The guys are on the limit. You see the cars are under-tired. You know, they're moving around. And, and, it's, and, and the commitment of the top looks sensational. You can see the guys that make a difference, you know. Um, and you know legends like Craig and those guys who have just been so good for the sport. They've been around forever, and then you've got these young guys coming in and at Penske now with you know Scotty and those guys, and it's good to watch. And um, but also it's it's there's enough young guys doing well. You know what is it for a washed up old dog? Yeah, I've done I've done well overseas. I really enjoyed it. But it's not, in a way, yes. It's a bit sort of, it's a bit wanky to some come back and say, "Well, I'll have a have a little go of this on the way out," sort of thing. I don't really need to need to do it. So nowadays, you have an ambassadorial role with with Porsche. Mm-hmm. Am I right in saying you've given your racing license? Have you handed that back in? Is yeah, that right? yeah. I haven't got a license this year at the moment. So, well, cl- cams. I always had to go through cams to get it. So, because if mm-hmm. I ever did well, it scored a podium when I was racing in sports cars, and then they pay it. Play the uh, Australian national anthem, so it is done through cams and then it goes back through. But um, yeah, I haven't got my racing license, so um, yeah. what is Mark Webber doing it. now? Then? I, mean, <laughs> you, you, I know we've seen stuff about Mission E and things like that. What, what's mm. what's your program entail? Um, well, I do ten Formula One races for Channel Four on UK TV commentary. So so that's um, do all the live races there with with DC, um, David Coulthard, and uh, yeah, do quite a lot of work for Porsche now and. 
that's on road car side, mainly on our new projects, so a bit of GT, uh, GT911 work. Um, obviously, the Mission E-car is, is coming now too, which we're excited about. Um, so that's been enjoyable. Um, and Formula E, we're going to do that soon. So really just a bit of, I suppose, leaning on me also in a little bit of a, of a representative and consultancy way too, which I enjoy doing. I mean, I, I, you know, I love the brand. I've been buying Porsche since... You know, I could, um, and and um, I'm getting more and more close to how they tick, and which takes time because they are they are different in terms of you know culturally from how we operate and go racing. But um, they're a sensational brand, um, and that's fun to work with them and and, and 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 work with that. And Red Bull, I do I do quite a bit with them. I'm with Mark Marquez next week um, with a Formula One car. So, that's uh, cool. Yeah, so helping helping him drive that. And Danny Pedrosa and Tony Caroli, who's a who's a, yes. who's a motocross legend. Um, so a bit of stuff here and there with them. Um, that's the fun stuff, but also in the background trying to help, you know, Red Bull um, do things better here and there wherever I can. Mm-hmm. And and flying the heli when I can, which is fun. And then Aussie Grid Apparel too. So, um, you know, doing – I love the outdoors love my training love my fitness always have done um, so that's been really really good and as of this week we've just had our biggest biggest week of sales ever so it continues to go from strength to strength in the UK and here in Australia so I love um, you know the clothing industry and, and having all the lessons and things that I've learned from from car racing you know it sounds bizarre but even things like suits and just how we can make things even better from a fabric selection and stitching and all those things which, which I've enjoyed so Busy enough, mate. I think last year was like 75 flights. This year we're probably close again. Um, so the phone's still ringing and, uh, yeah, 19 looks as busy. But, um, yeah. Let's do a couple of quick things to wrap up here. You've been very good with your, with your time. We'll call it call it a quick shift. What was your – I think we covered it a little bit earlier. What, what's Mark Webber's first car? The Corona, wasn't it? Yep, 1969 Toyota Corona. Worst car you've ever owned? Yeah, it would be the station wagon uh, Holden Commodore. Okay. Your daily drive now is? 911 GD3 Touring. Is there a car on, on the resto list, the restoration list? Do you, you know, is that not your thing? Would you, would you just rather have the latest and greatest? Well, as Mr. Porsche always said, the last car is always the best. <laughs> but uh, oh, I think a 959, like I'd love a, like I like the 959, also the Carrera GT, but um, yeah bit of a soft touch for some of the Ferraris but um, yeah I mean anything I mean even some old Aussie stuff a bit of American muscle whatever I mean I'm anyone that's got a beautiful that's preserved something really really nice I'm not um, not too fixed on one particular car have you kept any little when well, we know like Mick Doohan has kept some bikes from his career have you kept any, any mementos from your, your racing career yeah, sure. I mean, I've got all my helmets and uh, suits, all key helmets and suits. So I've got all those uh, and boots and, and all the apparel that I had key victories in and key races, first Formula One race, first Formula 3000 victory and, and Porsche, you know, whatever, Monaco and all key victories there, which is great. I've got my um, British Grand Prix winning Formula One car from 2010. Um, yeah. Also won the Hungarian Grand Prix in that car as well. Um, so that's good, the RB6. And... Porsche gave me you just the steering wheel from from my last race too, which was nice from the from the nine nineteen. So um, yeah, so I've got a couple of nice things. You've had some good ones during your career. Best teammate. Best teammate was I mean probably Seb in terms of the hardest hardest nut to crack. He was tough, but in terms of the most fun and the most enjoyable was sports car days because I had Schneider and then I had Brendan and Brendan and Timo. Final one for you. Is there a fave piece of road that you enjoy driving on, or perhaps even a favourite race track? <laughs> Favorite racetrack. I mean, Nordschleife in Germany is, is incredible. That's an uh, it's an amazing track to drive on. Um, in any even a streetcar, it's 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 just something that everyone should drive on the Nordschleife in Germany at least to go there and, and have a feel of that. And I think you know driving anywhere in 
in uh, in the mountains in Europe. I mean, if you're in the Dolomites in Italy or or in in French Alps or anywhere where it's um got those beautiful beautiful long windy roads or some nice hairpins um and you have a chance to stretch your legs some of the cars over there that's that's enjoyable so um yeah i've done some really cool road trips over there austria is stunning as well i mean the roads are super smooth and road kills vel- relatively light which is always an issue at night in, and obviously certainly is in this country but obviously you can't go- drive that quick here but doing more road driving now actually so it's uh, picking off some more roads which i'm enjoying Thank you for spending some time with us. Congratulations on on everything you've done from World Endurance Championship, wins at some of the most famous tracks in Formula One, um, a stellar career that is, as your your handle in in um, in social media says, mate, it, it was born out of grit, <laughs> Aussie grit, and um, and you you know pat on the back. Thanks, mate. Yeah, no, it was. Um, oh, there were certainly loads more guys with more talent than I had, but I just crafted away and, and did what I did, and um, yeah, I managed to to have a long long career of it over there and I think being from Australia and having a crack um, it's a it's a tremendous opportunity to do that for, for our country and, and obviously it's a very personal thing to, to hang in there for as long as you can and um, I really really enjoyed it but I had good people around me I mean at the end of the day I was always around people around me so I had, I had sensational advice and good people and, and I worked with the best people so that made my job a lot easier Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me Greg Rust Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.